Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. John chapter 8. Now, if, uh, if you are perceptive, uh, you may notice that the, uh, the Scripture for the sermon text in your bulletin this week is different than what last week's bulletin said it would be. Uh, last week, uh, the bulletin said we'd be looking at John chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11, which is the very famous story of, of Jesus encountering the woman who had been guilty of committing adultery, uh, where everyone is condemning the woman, and, and Jesus says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. That is a very famous and beloved story, and I will not be preaching on it today. Now, why is that? Well, if you're in chapter 8, I actually want you to back up and look at, uh, look at chapter 7, verse 53. Just go back a verse. And uh, if you're looking at um, an ESV Bible or, or, or most translations, and, and I think many of you have ESV Bibles, uh, you're going to find uh, John 7:53 through 8:11 in brackets. And you're going to find some sort of note there that says something like this: The earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. Uh, again, if you have another translation, uh, there should be some sort of notation or reference about this as well, maybe even a footnote, um, uh, although you may not see it in the, in the King James or in a New King James. Uh, now, the reason why most Bibles are going to have this notation bracketing off uh, that particular story is because there's virtually unanimous agreement among biblical scholars that this story was not written by John and, in, in fact, is a later addition to John's gospel. That should not scare you. It should actually increase your confidence in the Bible that you hold in your hands. And let me explain. The, the, the New Testament that we have in our Bibles today is based not off of the original documents that the apostles wrote. We don't have in a museum somewhere uh, the actual piece of parchment that the Apostle John wrote his epistle on. It would be cool if we found that and make a great Indiana Jones movie, but we don't have anything uh, like that. Uh, what we do have are, are copies, and we have copies of copies. Uh, in fact, we have close to 6,000 ancient Greek copies. New Testament was written in first century Greek. Now, remember, in the ancient world, there were no scanners, there were no copy machines, there were no printing presses, everything was copied by hand. And now, let's imagine now that you are a Bible translator, and you, and you lay these thousands of, of copies on a massive conference table. It would have to be massive. And on, on this end of the table, you've got the, uh, the, the older manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts written not long after the originals were actually penned. And then as you go to the other side of the table and you're going, moving forward in time hundreds of years, a thousand years later, now you've got other, you've got, you've got the, uh, the newer copies uh, that were written much later. Again, maybe a thousand years after the time of Christ. And here you are as the Bible translator, and when you, you compare all of these manuscripts, we're, we're pretending now that you know first century Greek, okay? When you compare all of these manuscripts, you, you, you find something very amazing. There is over 90% agreement in these manuscripts. There are no differences whatsoever 
whether you're looking at the, the oldest copies that we have or whether you're using, looking at the newer copies thousands of years later, there is no difference. There's total agreement in all the words and, the, and where there are differences between certain manuscripts, most of those differences are inconsequential. Those differences are called variant readings, variant readings. So, for example, if you've got eight manuscripts that say X, Y, Z, and then you've got one manuscript that says X, Y, Y, then this over here, that's a variant reading. And you've got variant readings in the ancient manuscripts. And you can usually tell what caused those differences. Uh, you can see in one manuscript, for example, maybe a scribe spelled a word wrong. Uh, maybe in another manuscript, a scribe repeated a word. There, there, there could be lots of other reasons for that. Again, the scribes, the scribes are not infallible. And for the most part, though, they did a great job copying uh, the Scriptures, and they were very committed to the seriousness of what they were doing. That's exactly why you have well over 90% agreement in all these manuscripts. But occasionally, there were minor errors or minor additions or deletions, and that's where you get the, these variant readings from. And one of the important things for you to know is that none of the variant readings alter Christian doctrine or change any essentials of the faith. While nearly all of the variant readings are small changes, what we have here in John chapter 753 through 811 is large, and it is a full story. But all of the evidence shows that this story was not original to John, that he didn't pen this originally. And the reason why we know that is because we have so many documents to compare and to contrast. And so let's go back now to our giant conference table. And, and we have all 6,000 manuscripts laid out. And we go over all these manuscripts that have John's gospel in them. And, and, and now we're on this side of the table. We're looking at the documents on this side of the table, the, the earliest and the oldest of the manuscripts. And guess what you'll find? You will not find that story in the oldest and earliest of manuscripts. It is nowhere to be found. But then as you start moving in this direction... And you start moving to this side of the, of the table, you get to around the 5th century, and all of a sudden, guess what? You find it. And, and you find it in later documents uh, from later centuries. And the further you go, you begin to find it all over the place now. Now, typically in, in Bible translation, the older documents are going to carry more weight than the newer ones. And that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and this story is absent from our oldest manuscripts. Again, it doesn't appear until around the, the 5th century. Now, there are other markers that point to this story being a later addition to the text. I'm, I'm happy to talk with you about that one-on-one -on -one at, at a later time. I don't have time to get into all of this uh, today. This is something that you would get in, a, in a, um, a Bible college class or a seminary class as you deal with the discipline, the science that's called textual criticism, where you're examining all of these, these ancient, ancient documents. Um, but, but all of the evidence demonstrates that this story was not originally in John's gospel. Now, while scholars agree that this story is a later edition, there also appears to be large agreement that this story about Jesus and the woman caught in adultery actually did happen. And, and perhaps through oral tradition, uh, this story was passed down and eventually found its way into some of the manuscripts, and then it was copied from there. Uh, but, but my... My, the, the thing that I've struggled with as I've been looking at this is not whether or not the story actually happened, but whether or not John actually wrote it. 
whether or not it is from an, uh, an inspired apostle who, who, who's being guided by the Holy Spirit. That's the big deal for me. And because this story is written by the Apostle John, again, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit, I don't think it's appropriate to preach from this text as we're going through John's gospel. Now, here's the big takeaway from this, friends. None of this should shake your confidence in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it should do the exact opposite. It should increase it. Because we have, because we have so many ancient Greek manuscripts, and some of them very old and very close to the, to the time of the original writing, because we have so many, like I said, nearly 6,000, way more, by the way, than, than, than uh, any other ancient document in history. It's, it's really amazing the wealth of manuscripts that we have, and I think that's from God. Uh, the, because of that, the mistakes, the copyist errors, even additions like this story here, it really doesn't matter because we can easily de- detect all of the errors through comparison of manuscripts. If you only had one or two ancient copies, that would be a problem. It would be virtually impossible for you to objectively verify with any certainty the accuracy of our New Testaments. But we don't have one or two. Again, we have thousands, and that number increases all the time, and it's very exciting. Because we have so many, we can actually reconstruct what the original Holy Spirit-inspired writers of the Bible really wrote. We can reconstruct that. We don't need the originals. John Piper says this, when I agree with the vast majority of scholars that the story of the woman taken in adultery was not in the gospel of John, you should not think, oh my, everything is up for grabs now, or how can I count on any text? On the contrary, you can be thankful that God has in His sovereign providence over the transmission process for 2,000 years ordered things so that the few uncertainties that remain alter no doctrine of the Christian faith. That is really astounding when you think about it, and we should worship God because of it. And I agree with Piper on that. I say amen to that. Again, I'm more than happy to talk with you more about this if you're, if you're interested. I'm a, I'm a Bible geek, so I could talk about this for like an hour, but most of you don't want anything like that. So we're just going to move on. You're like, can you get to preaching, Deemer? And I will. All right, so now, would you please stand with me as we read from John chapter 8, and we're going to look at verse 12. Our sermon is going to be on verses 12 through 59, uh, and due to the length of the passage and the short amount of time that we have remaining, uh, we're just going to read one verse, and then I'm going to touch on some high points uh, in this chapter. And what I'm about to read to you now, we can have full confidence that the Apostle John wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We fully recognize and acknowledge that this is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray this morning that you would speak through your word, that you, would, that you would speak in spite of a weak, fallible preacher, and that you would speak in spite of weak, fallible hearers. Help us this morning, Father. Bless the reading and the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Our passage today um, picks up where we left off 
last week in John chapter 7, where Jesus is attending the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. This feast happened annually in the fall, and the point of the, of the festival was to remember God's faithfulness to Israel during her 40 years of wilderness wanderings in the Old Testament. And in last week's message, we saw how on the last day of the feast, Jesus used the water-drawing ceremony as an opportunity to present Himself to the crowds as the one who could offer living water to spiritually thirsty people. But Jesus isn't done. Not only is He going to use the occasion of the Feast of Tabernacles to offer Himself as a thirst quencher, but He's also going to use this as an opportunity now to demonstrate Himself as a light bringer. A light bringer, which brings us to my first observation about this section, and that is that Jesus is light. Jesus is light. One of the amazing things that God did during that time in the wilderness for Israel, as they're wandering around, was to protect them and to guide them with a blazing, fiery, bright pillar, a pillar of fire. It was an incredible manifestation of the presence and the glory of God, God's Shekinah glory, which we see throughout the Old Testament in various forms. It's the special, visible manifestation of His glorious power and beauty. And in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were led through the wilderness by this pillar. And by day, it was a pillar of cloud. It was a bright cloud. And by night, a blazing, gigantic column of fire. And as part of the commemoration, as part of the the Feast of Tabernacles, the celebrants would gather together in, in the court of women in the temple, and at night they would set afire four huge golden candelabras. When I say huge, I mean like 75 feet tall. Each candelabra had four branches, and at the top of every branch there was a large bowl. And they would haul 10-gallon pitchers of oil up ladders to fill the four golden bowls on each candelabra, and then they would ignite the oil in the bowls. You can imagine how spectacular that would have been. It was nighttime. There there were no streetlights. It's very, very dark, right? It's It's... You know, here, even in, in, you know, out away from the, the big city of Atlanta, out downtown, you go outside at night, there's still plenty of lights around. So, so you, you're not really, um, you're not really impressed with this sense of darkness. But again, this is the ancient world. They don't have street lights, neon signs, anything like that. And so it's really, really dark. And they're lighting all of these things ablaze now. Imagine, uh, imagine these beautiful blazes leaping towards the sky from these huge golden lamps. What's more, the temple was on a hill overlooking the rest of Jerusalem, so you can imagine how glorious this glow would have appeared to the rest of the city. Everyone who was in Jerusalem, who was not at the temple, could see this blazing, fiery light. You had Levitical musicians playing harps and lyres and cymbals and tambourines and trumpets. They're they're dancing around with torches, waving them through the night. It really is a celebration of light. And it is in this context that Jesus steps forward and He says something absolutely incredible in verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Now, this theme of light is a reoccurring motif 
in the Old Testament. So, for example, you have in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Or you go to Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. We see elsewhere in the Scriptures, again, this Shekinah glory of God. It's present in the, in, the, in the temple in the Old Testament. And eventually, due to Israel's unfaithfulness, you see the glory of the Lord depart the temple. It leaves the temple in the book of Ezekiel. And Jesus comes along now and says, I am the light of the world. Now, light represents many things. It represents truth, knowledge, salvation, purity. It represents the presence of God. And what does darkness represent in the Scriptures? Darkness represents ignorance and sin, condemnation, and being abandoned by God. In its ultimate sense, spiritual darkness anticipates hell. Jesus elsewhere calls hell a place of outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in declaring Himself to be the light of the world... Jesus is making an incredible claim. All of the things that light represents, spiritual life, knowledge, salvation, protection, purity, all of these things are found in Jesus alone. Notice Jesus not only declares Himself uh, uh, the light, but He says, you've got to follow that light. He says, whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is telling the people that just like your forefathers followed that pillar of blazing light towards the promised land, those who follow me will have the true light to to get to God and to the life that he provides. Jesus is telling telling the people that to follow me, follow after the light. Now, despite this incredible offer that Jesus makes, We're going to see later on in this chapter, Jesus' audience pushing back and resisting Jesus and the light that He brings. As a matter of fact, we're going to see them getting angry. Now why? Why would anyone resist Jesus and the amazing gift that He offers? Gospel of John tells us back in chapter 3, tells us the reason why. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's not just talking about the villains of the Bible. That's us. That's the normal human condition. That's how all of us are, apart from the saving work of Jesus in our lives and in our hearts. And so Jesus comes along and says, I am the light. And Jesus says, follow the light. Now, what does that look like practically? He tells you down in verse 31. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, this is very important because John has already demonstrated uh, on a number of occasions that there really are only two kinds of belief. There's a belief that leads to eternal life, and there is a fickle, vain, shallow, useless belief. But Jesus says here in John chapter 8, if you follow me, you'll have light. And if you abide in my word or in my teaching, you are truly my disciples. D.A. Carson says that a genuine believer remains in Jesus' word, his teaching, 
Such a person obeys it, seeks to understand it better, and finds it more precious, more controlling, precisely when other forces flatly oppose it. Now, this doesn't mean that a genuine Christian never sins. In fact, the Apostle John himself writes later on in 1 John, uh, 1 John chapter 1, that if we say we, we, we are without sin, we lie. But then he encourages us by saying, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Genuine believers can and do fall into sin. Exhibit A, right here in front of you. On the other hand, the Bible really doesn't have a category for a Christian whose life is totally marked by a constant, unrepentant, continuously willful abandoning and a continuous fleeing from God because it's the one who abides in the teaching, who has both the Father and the Son, the Apostle John writes in 2 John. And if you refuse to follow Him, you walk in darkness. So Jesus reveals Himself to be light. And then as we go through the text, we, we see that the light exposes who we are. The light exposes who we really are. Jesus like a shining lamp, like a blazing torch in a dark room, exposes and reveals previously hidden things about us that are ugly, things that make us uncomfortable. Now, in verse 30, if you look down at verse 30, it says that many Jews believed in Him. But we're going to see that it's a fickle and shallow faith because things are going to take an ugly turn in verse 31 as Jesus talks with them about abiding in His Word, and that the truth shall set them free. And this gets the Jews very angry. Look at verse 32. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say, you will become free? This talk of being set free pricks the pride of the Jews. Now, these are people who are very moral outwardly. They have an appearance of piety. And they, they lean back on their ethnic and their religious heritage. We're the offspring of Abraham. We're sons of the kingdom. We're the people of God. How dare you talk about us being slaves? And Jesus, the light of the world, turns up that lamp a little brighter and He shines it on their hearts. And look at what He says in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Jesus is telling them, you don't see the root problem of what's going on in your life. He's saying, every single one of you sins, and you are a slave to sin. You're being held captive, and you are not as free as you think you are. I think that every single one of us in this room knows what Jesus is talking about. Sin always seems liberating. You feel free from the bondage of rules. That first hit of most kinds of addictive and illicit drugs seems to be the most liberating experience that somebody can feel. But then one day after the 20th hit, or the 200th hit, or the 1,000th hit, you suddenly, with horror, realize that you are being held captive. You're in bondage. You're in slavery. And you thought that you were free all along. The first click onto that porn website seems to be the most liberating experience ever. And then after your marriage is ruined, you realize to your horror, you're a slave. 
It's got you. And that's how it is with every kind of sin. And the light of Jesus exposes sin for what it is. He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. In other words, if you're just a slave, the minute that the thing or the person who is enslaving you is finished with you, you're done. You're used up. You are thrown out and you are cast aside. That's how it is if you're a slave. But the son, the son's in the house forever. You can hire a guy to work on the plumbing in your house, but you don't expect that plumber to show up at your house every Thanksgiving and Christmas. But your child, your son, your child has that right and will always have that right. Jesus is telling them, you think you are sons of the kingdom. You think that God is your father. You are really slaves who have no part in God's household. But then Jesus turns around and he offers good news. In verse 36, he says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is the, is the one true Son in God's household. And what does He do? He liberates slaves and He brings them into the Father's house. Salvation is adoption. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way before. That's what salvation is. It's adoption. God adopts us into His family and we become children of God with Jesus as our elder brother. And Jesus tells us that there are only two families, there are really only two fathers. Look at verse 37. He says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Now here Jesus means that they are physical offspring of Abraham. Jesus acknowledges that. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Now, don't, don't miss that. Jesus, the light of the world, He is shining that lamp into the deepest corners of their hearts. Remember, remember who Jesus is talking to. These weren't people who were obviously the bad guys. Who are they? Go back to verse 31. It says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, if you abide in My Word, you're truly My disciples. Now, that, that's huge. These people who are not only moral, they're not only pious, they're not only religious, but they have demonstrated some sort of positive response to Jesus. But Jesus is not satisfied with outward, superficial piety and lip service. Jesus is concerned about the inner man. He's concerned about what's going on in the heart. And as Jesus shines that blazing light into their hearts, what does it reveal? It reveals murder. These are like the people God unmasks in Isaiah chapter 29, where God says, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, this is one of the reasons why people hate Jesus. You see, we want to be comfortably religious we want to appear okay to the world while holding on to the sins that we are enslaved to, and Jesus will not have any of that. And so these fake believers are exposed, and as Jesus pushes them, what they have tried to cover up is coming out. What's been in their hearts is coming out. But Jesus isn't done with them. Verse 37, he says, I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. 
Jesus says, you think that your father is God. You think you're one of the good guys, but actually you have a different father. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. You see, they believed that just because they were ethnically Jewish, that they automatically had the inside track to heaven and that they were automatically children of God. And look at Jesus' response. He says, if you were Abraham's children, okay, now Jesus is talking spiritually. Earlier, he acknowledged them as Abraham's offspring in regards to their physical heritage. Here, he's talking about Abraham's children in the way that matters most. He says, if you are Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Jesus is saying, you claim to be children of Abraham, but I don't see the family resemblance. You, you, you share a family resemblance to somebody else. You share a resemblance with another father. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That is some powerful stuff. Jesus doesn't mince words. You know, there are many people today who claim to be believers, who claim to be Christians, and yet They don't bear the family resemblance one iota. Something to consider. So Jesus shines the lights ever brighter, and He exposes the deepest and dirtiest corners of their hearts. He says, you think you're children of God, but you're not. And I know you're not, because you won't hear my word. You won't believe my word. You hate me. The devil's always hated Jesus. And Jesus is telling this crowd that you're following in your father's footsteps. You're following in your daddy's shoes. And friends, as it was then, so it is now. There are only two groups of people in this world. There are only two families. There are children of God, and there are children of the devil. Period. And Jesus is telling us that the line of demarcation between the two groups is how we respond to Jesus and what He reveals about Himself. The line of demarcation is how we respond to that light when it shines on us. And so the Apostle John writes in chapter 3, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus shines his light. He reveals the fullness of who he is to these Jews And they reject Him, and they reject what they see. And Jesus turns to them and says, If God were your Father, you would love Me. 
Friends, you don't have to be a devil worshiper to be a child of the devil. All you have to do is not love Jesus. And loving Jesus is not a casual kind of lip service. If you love Jesus, then you'll believe Him, and you'll follow Him, and you'll live for Him, and you'll receive Him for all He is, instead of just picking and choosing what you like about Jesus and throwing out the rest. And as Jesus brings His light into the world, it reveals His greatness and His superiority, and it reveals our sin and our enslavement and our need for rescue. And we either curse the light and we retreat into the darkness and continue our enslavement, or receive the liberation in life that is found in Jesus. It's really that simple. So Jesus is light. The light exposes who we really are. But also we see, finally, that Jesus provides life. He is the light that provides life. Back up to verse 23. Jesus said to them, You are from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. That's the bad news. Bad news is you will die in your sins and go to hell. The good news is unless you believe that I am He. Now, the I am He statements of Jesus, and there's several of them in John chapter 8. The I am He statements of Jesus recalls a host of verses in the book of Isaiah. We've got a number of them. For example, Isaiah 41.4. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. Or Isaiah 43.13. And also henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. Or... Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That phrase, I am He, is used in Isaiah as a euphemism for the very name of God, and it has a direct allusion to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where Moses asks God His name, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So God revealed His name to Moses as I am, which carries the idea of the self-sufficiency and the eternal, unchanging nature of God. He's always the same. Now, out of all these I am He declarations in Isaiah, perhaps the most striking parallel with Jesus' words in John 8 is found in Isaiah 43.10, which says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. In Isaiah 43, God, presenting himself as the only Savior, says he desires that you may believe that I am he, that you may know and believe that I am he. And then Jesus comes along, and He presents Himself as the only Savior. And then what does He say? He says, For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Friends, Jesus is talking like God, because Jesus is God. 
He has identified himself with the pillar of blazing fire, and now he identifies himself with the God of Isaiah, who is the only Savior. And he does it again in verse 28. If you go down to verse 28 in John 8, it says, So so Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Now, I grant you that Jesus' I am statements in verses 24 and 28 are a bit ambiguous, bit enigmatic. Perhaps they should be regarded as simply veiled references to His deity. But whatever ambiguity there might have been is totally gone by the time you get to verse 58. And Jesus' point becomes crystal clear, and it's nothing less than explosive. Look down at verse 56. Jesus says, "'Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad.'" So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Abraham lived thousands of years before Jesus And Jesus turns to the crowd, and He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He could have said that, but that's not Jesus' point here. Jesus is not trying to say simply, I'm really old. Instead, He takes the divine name of God, of Yahweh, He takes that name and and He he applies it to Himself. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus doesn't have bad grammar. He's declaring himself to be God. And Jesus here is doing something that no Jew would dare do. He boldly applies that divine name to himself. The Old Testament curses anyone who does that. We see that actually in Isaiah chapter 47, in Isaiah 47. It says, Now therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, there is none beside me. You felt secure in your wickedness, and you said in your heart, I am, and there's no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Now, friends, if Jesus is not really God, He deserves every one of those curses that talks about in Isaiah 47. But He doesn't deserve those curses. He deserves worship. Now, if the Jews missed Jesus' point earlier in the story, they get it now, because look at their reaction. So they picked up stones to throw at Him. Jewish law, to declare yourself to be God, was blasphemy, and the penalty was death. Jesus here identifies Himself as God in the flesh. And and, and here we get another glimpse of that mysterious doctrine known as the Trinity, One God existing as three distinct persons. Both the Father and the Son are in this chapter. And a few chapters later, Jesus is going to give us some information about the third person, the Holy Spirit. That's for later. Jesus claimed to be God. Not just here, but all over the place in the Gospels, in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, in John. Jesus is not just a good teacher. We don't consider people who claim to be God good teachers. We lock them up in mental institutions. 
So if you are uncertain about Christ, let me make it simple. There are three ways you can respond. Either Jesus is a liar and you should condemn Him, or He is a lunatic and you should run from Him, or He is Lord and you should worship Him. That's it. He doesn't leave you with any other options. You make the call and live with the consequences. And the fact that Jesus is God is really good news. It's really good news for you. Jesus is not just hype. He's not just a souped-up human. He's not just a a meta-human. You Flash fans caught that reference. He's the Lord. He's Lord. From, From the beginning of history until now, there have been men, there have been religious leaders, there have been spiritual gurus who stepped forward saying, follow me, or follow my way. And then they offer peace, they offer life, they offer happiness, they offer heaven. And they're all just men, and none of them can deliver on their promises. They don't have the power to do anything for you, and they themselves are dead. They can't can't give you life. You can believe in them for your whole life, and you're going to come at the end of your days, and you're going to have nothing to show for it. But Jesus comes along and says, follow me. I am the light. I am he. And if Jesus really is God, then he can really deliver you from sin and from the devil and from death. No no mere man can defeat the devil. No mere man can conquer death. No mere man can deal with sin and totally change your heart. But a God-man can. But sadly... When Jesus fully turns that light on and puts the spotlight on the, on the crowd as wicked rebels while revealing Himself to be God in the flesh, the one that can deliver them from darkness, they hate it. They hate it. They would rather remain in the shadows than come to the light. Now, that's how all of us are in our sinful, natural condition. We, like them, have found comfort in the shadows. Left to ourselves, we, like them, don't like it when God tells us the truth about ourselves. That we are rebels. That we are devil children. That Jesus is the only Savior and the only God, and besides Him, there is no other. Without God's grace changing our hearts, we all would prefer to either have no Jesus at all, or have a Jesus that we can stomach that's more to our liking. We would prefer to have fickle faith in a false Jesus, if it allows us to remain comfortably numb. And left to ourselves, we too will experience the same sad ending as these Jews in in chapter 8. They reject Jesus, and how does Jesus respond? Verse 59, Jesus hid Himself and went out of the temple. That is so sad. They have persistently rejected Jesus. And now Jesus withdraws Himself from them. Just like in the book of Ezekiel, uh, that, when that Shekinah glory of God, that, that bright, shining presence of God in the temple, in the end, it departed from the temple in response to the faithlessness of the people. And what do we have here in the Gospel of John? We see the glory of God returning to the temple in the person of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John says about Jesus in chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. And here we have the glory of God, the light of the world coming back to the temple. And sadly, because of persistent unbelief, chapter 8 ends with the glory departing from the temple 
yet again. That should serve as a warning. To constantly reject the Lord will lead to His rejection of you. But thankfully, that's not the whole story. Jesus says in a few chapters from now, in in John chapter 12, while you have the light, believe in in the light, that you may become sons of light. Jesus wanted the people to know that that the time was short. Soon He would depart and go back to heaven, but there was still time to believe. And likewise today, we live in a time where the light of the glorious gospel is still echoing throughout the earth, still shining throughout the earth. The invitation to repent and come to the light still stands. People can still believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's not too late to believe the good news. If you haven't believed it yet, it's not too late. It's not too late to believe that good news that God rescues sinners from spiritual darkness. Many of you in this room have already experienced that rescue. Many of us were co-conspirators with Satan against God. This is a room full of ex-outlaws ex-rebels, ex-devil children, ex-insurrectionists. And what has God done? Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, how does this happen? Well, Jesus hints at it in verse 28. If you're still in John 8, you can go back to verse 28, and Jesus gives a hint about how this is going to happen. He says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. When Jesus was lifted up on a cross, He didn't die for His own sins. He didn't have any. He died for man's sins. So now all who believe in Jesus will not die in their sins because that death already happened in Jesus 2,000 years ago. And so now we who believe, who have been forgiven, don't fear death and don't fear hell. Instead, we await the fullness of the inheritance of the saints of light. We, we look forward to being raised from the dead as Jesus was raised, and, and as Jesus will rule and reign one day over the entire cosmos in a, in a visible, obvious fashion, so shall His younger brothers and sisters, you and I, rule and reign with Him in the coming age. And because we are no longer slaves, but we are children of God, we know that we will remain in God's house forever, never to be cast out. Some of you in this room have experienced that rescue from captivity, and yet you are still learning how to walk as a son or a daughter of the light. Maybe you struggle with reoccurring, besetting sins that no one else knows about, and you hate it. But a part of you still, and a part of you still feels that, that pull to hide in the shadows and not let God's light expose you to bury things and cover it up. So some of you recognize that there is an ex-slave master pursuing you, wanting to drag you back into the shadows. Message for you this morning is to step into the light. You are a child of light, and your Father has something so much better for you than whatever you are holding on to. And it's time for you to enjoy, to a greater degree, 
the freedom that you already have in Christ. And as your pastor, I would love to talk with you more about that. So reach out to me anytime so I can help you, I can encourage you and, and pray with you and walk with you through that. Others of you in this room may be beginning to recognize for the very first time that you have been held captive by your own sins and you have willfully sold yourself into bondage to a slave master. message for you this morning is what Jesus said in our passage today. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Believe while there is yet time. Turn from your sins. Believe in Jesus. Receive Him for all that He is. Let His, let his death be your death and let His life be your life as you seek to live for your new father as a child of the king. Friends, the light at first hurts. It cuts. It exposes. But it also illuminates the things in your life that are destroying you. Things that Jesus has come to rescue you from. So my prayer for you today is that you'll stop walking in darkness, that you will have the light of life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for sending the light of the world into the world to deliver sinners out of the domain of darkness, bringing us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Your glorious Son. Father, I pray that You will help us all now to live as sons and daughters of the light. Help us, Father, to step out of the shadows and into everything that You have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.